Hello, world singers. My name is Brooke. And I'm Tyler. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Conversations. Welcome back, everyone. We are here again for our Oathbringer reread. These are the middle parts, parts three and four in yeah, the surrounding this is, interludes. This is the juicy part. There is a lot. And a lot. <laughs> we are going to break down Oathbringer for you today. You can follow along on the social medias, Reddit, Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere. You know this. We are in the midst, the buildup to Rhythm of War currently in this time but it doesn't matter wherever you are listening to us whenever you are listening to us Oathbringers out there and that's what we're talking about today in this episode we are including interludes two as well as part three and interludes three and then part four so kind of just the middle chunk of the book if you're reading on kindle we're looking at like 33 to 66 percent or something like that the meat of the sandwich and it's well let's just go right into our can't wait section because i think these are the most important parts not just to oathbringer but to the greater stormlight archive kind of series one which is the first five books Mm -hmm. this is my new concept after rereading and kind of trying to figure out where Rhythm of War is going, putting the other two Cosmere books in context a little bit better. It really seems like the book three of this five-part series is where all the stuff that we did see is kind of building up to, and then everything that happens after will be because of the stuff that's going on in Parts three, four, and yes, five as well in Oathbringer. Right. Because not only are we reviewing the meat of the sandwich of Oathbringer today, but Oathbringer itself is the meat, meat of, of the, the sandwich. sandwich. Exactly. We've <laughs> incepted ourselves into a Cosmere sandwich. We are multiple layers deep. And I am just astonished by how much, how many different emotions I felt while it's reading this. So- crazy and we've we've done this reread fairly quickly so we finished way of kings not all that long ago but it already feels like so long ago when you think back to way of kings and you're thinking about where the characters were at that time and like what they were concerned about and then now where we are and the things that we're dealing with in oathbringer it blows your mind i do think it's been a crazy few months for our characters as well because if we think of like the story starting with like kaladin in his oh you mean like the in-world timeline yeah oh yeah that's also very uh, it's really compressed yeah much more than it seems i think when you first read it and then on this reread in particular it became very clear how much is happening in a very short amount of time for the characters and i think we'll talk about that with kind of Oathbringer's themes of past failures, doubting yourself, becoming a new person, the most important step you 
take is the next one. Yeah. That kind of philosophy. I think, I think it goes really well. I think that's a great point because one of the themes is sort of the the middle place. Just yes. like this is a middle book and we are reviewing the middle of that book. The characters are all sort of dealing with what to do when you are in that sort of awkward middle place in your life where you are not the person you used to be, but you're like grappling with that person and you are not yet the person that you will become, that you have a little bit of an idea who that might be, but not it hasn't crystallized yet. That, you know, really uncomfortable period of transformation and transition is where we find the characters. That's a wonderful point. And just like pointing that out has already like started to solidify more of these kind of major overarching themes from the Stormlight Archive. But I just find these sections that we are talking about today so much happens but it's so significant it's like you can just see how all of the different ripple effects from these events will be causing big waves for the rest of the story it's like our characters are riding the waves out from these events that are happening here i think we'll talk about these in more detail but i just wanted to like point out a couple of what i'm talking about specifically so we have elicar's death and that ends part three you have multiple characters dealing with that in multiple ways but i think one of the most obvious things is that by the end of this book by the setup for rhythm of war yasna has replaced elicar and that is an entirely different direction that cannot happen unless Elicar dies. Like there was no way for the rest of the story to happen as it's going to happen unless this event happened. Similar, I think there's a bunch of stuff going on right now in the background with the religions, the church, um, the Voran church specifically with like naming Dalinar. I really love that you brought up this point as something really important that's going to have far-reaching consequences Mm -hmm. in the future because I think that is exactly right. And it's so easy to forget about or sort of like push to the background. Yeah, I mean, I overlooked it Because so much is happening, but it's huge. I think I overlooked it and the characters are overlooking it. Yeah, 100%. And the importance. And like multiple times, like things keep coming and popping up that you should be paying attention to but it seems like you said so small I to think, the other events yeah on this reread it's a little bit more clear that brandon sanderson is trying mm-hmm. to continue to drop little bits of that story so that we don't completely forget about it but it's just not the most pressing concern when you know odium and the last kind of major thing that we see in part four is the kind of introduction really to readers of Shadesmar. What does Shadesmar look like on Rashar? That's we get it for the first time in part four. And I think that's only going to increase and the way that Shadesmar and the physical realm are interacting only going to increase throughout the Stormlight Archive, throughout all of the books. There is just so much that blows my mind when Part four is basically taking place in an entire, not entirely different world, but a world that's so different in so many fundamental ways that you're just shocked. It's like you've dropped into a different story. Like Brandon wrote a sub story within his 
that master is, epic. That's maybe one of my rough cuts. Rough cuts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So before we jump into your rough cut, because I, I think that's a good rough cut as well. But do you have something that you can't wait to talk about? Well, okay. So in my notes, my can't wait and rough cut are kind of the same thing. Okay. And now I have a new rough cut. <laughs> Excellent. So multiple rough cuts, nothing. Okay. So the thing you can't wait to talk about is your rough cuts. Yeah. So my initial rough cut slash can't wait was that part three of this book is extremely hard to get through it took me it took me a really long time to get through it honestly like uh, my reading pace definitely slowed down when i hit part three because it's just depressing it's really hard every character is going through unpleasant things but that being said once you get to the end of part three and you're like through it you can't stop reading yeah the reward is a Sander Savalanche of 300 to 400 pages. It's just like it never stops. Yeah. And it is a feeling that I do not feel very often as an adult, but right? felt a lot as a kid where I legitimately could not stop reading, like compulsively just had the book with me at literally all times, whether I was brushing my teeth or walking somewhere or like one, my nose was just in the book all the time. And that's how I feel after I get through part three of Oathbringer. It's just like, I can't do anything. I can't eat. I can't sleep. Nothing matters except reading this book. Which is why we take days off of work when the <laughs> books are dropped so that we can process and read by ourselves. That's a real thing that we do. <laughs> okay, but now my second rough cut is that... This book does feel like maybe three different books Mm -hmm. in one. I mean, it's difficult to be a middle book and it shows some of those. It's like the best version of a bad thing. Not yeah. It's like not that any of the parts are bad or I don't enjoy them on their own. It's just the structure. But on the other side of part four now, when I look back and I think about Shalon chasing the mimic murderer in Urethiru, it's right. just like, oh my God, that was... When did that happen? That was a completely different book, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as far as the character is concerned, because all of our attention and our priorities have completely changed. Obviously, those events have to happen. They are integral to where we go, but I and I don't even know if I want to say it's disjointed, but there is certainly a really broad storyline happening in this book. I think you're 100 percent correct. I think it is the difficulty of being a middle book of trying to do this weird balancing act that we've been talking about. I think that it's pulled off successfully, but regardless of how successful it is, it's still in this position of kind of juggling multiple things all at once yeah and and trying to make that journey of where the characters were and trying to get them to where they need to go which is basically all happening in this book it's truly an incredible feat then that so much of the book still feels grounded and connected we had a great time last week talking about like the bridge four chapters and like how those characters are given their moment in the light i think that connecting us to elicar just to set up his death 
um, is another like perfect example of writing. Just like Brandon is introducing more and more aspects of Elokar finally then getting him to a point where he's going to bond with the Spren only to take him away, only to have Moash kill him and put Kaladin on this downward spiral that he goes throughout part four. My rough cut is very similar to what you said about part three just being hard to get through. But for me, it is so much more focused on Dalinar himself. Obviously, there's Dalinar's book and the flashbacks that he experiences with his period as a warlord, I think are just so significant because he's the hero. Like he's this this guy that's held up by Kaladin and his soldiers and Brandon's by writing of him. Literally everyone. Like, yeah, everything Adolin. is building up Dalinar and then we get characters like Sadius. I think Elicar mentions it. Definitely Teravangian. Definitely Fen in this book. But like multiple times characters say things like, what are you talking about, Dalinar? You remember how it used to be? Like, we need the Blackthorn. We, uh, Fen specifically says like, I think you became a good man just in time for the world to end. Like, I don't need a good man. The Blackthorn would have killed everyone who stood in his way. And I personally always took that as, oh, they just don't understand. Like, Dalinar isn't that bad. Well, I think there's a difference, too, between hearing something and seeing something. Exactly. So when people say, like, oh, he used to be this great warrior, well... What does we, that mean? We, yeah, we have heard all throughout our lives that figures in history were great warriors, you know, and it's told as this epic hero's story that has been, you know, completely stripped of any reality. Mm. And then in this book, we see the truth of that statement and like what war is like, what it means to be a warrior and a conqueror. And it's not very pretty. Yeah. And so where Kaladin and Shallan are experiencing very similar kind of emotions and stories and their their theme is tied together with Dalinar's, I sympathize and empathize with both of them so much more where Dalinar, I honestly at points was like revolted by him because just what you said, like, oh, he's not like Kaladin who just kind of like stumbled into a situation where there's war all around him and he's trying to survive and he's trying to protect those that he loves. Like Dalinar, Brandon has said this previously, that Dalinar is based off of the conquest of Genghis Khan and the beginning of the Mongol Empire. And so you can kind of see the Alethi as like a weird hodgepodge of East Asia history. Genghis Khan is the founder of Mongolia. You can tell that story a lot of different ways, and this happens quite a bit, where what's the difference between George Washington and Genghis Khan? It's like PR, a good storyteller. (laughs) I think that that is sort of an argument for this book though and for Dalinar's story and like yes. the bravery of telling a story like this that really challenges the reader to make peace with those two different people that we see and like doing some self-reflection and noticing like what do I what do I feel what is my reaction uh learning that this man who I thought was 
the pinnacle of yeah. honor and goodness, you know, the perfect man, I find out all of these terrible things about him. What is my reaction? And then like, how do I put these pieces together? How do I make peace with that? And how do I feel about that bad person, in quotes, being allowed to sort of move forward and change and grow and become the Dalinar that we know? It's almost like the the dare, like, do you really believe the first ideal that it is yes. about the journey and that, you know, everyone has the opportunity and the right to take the next step and to become different than they were before, no matter what, even if their past is that bad. And most of our pasts are not that bad. <laughs> exactly. Like no one's like, past is that bad. But even Dalinar is not exempt from his journey, his path, the fact that he has the opportunity and the ability to take the next step. I really think that this is, as you said, fundamental to the book, fundamental to the story. It needs to be made clear that Dalinar is a bad person, that he's made very bad decisions, horrific, terrible decisions, and that he is able to take the next step. There's another quote um, that is, a hypocrite is often just a man who's in the process of changing. I love that quote. Obviously, like this is the theme that Brandon was writing and that he had in mind for Dalinar's character. But I think it was really important in the flashbacks to make it clear that the people who were warning us about Dalinar and trying to like say things, oh, you know, you're the Blackthorn, the Blackthorn was crazy. We should believe them well, like we should give their story credit too even the people saying those things were sugarcoating it yes you know they didn't even know the people the who said the worst things about dalinar didn't even scratch the surface the only person who like truly shared the worst things about dalinar could be odium and cultivation right kadash I mean, I mean oh kadash is definitely like real close and he his relationship with dalinar the different fights they have the quarrels with the religion i think that's really important the key aspect that i think we learn is just what the kind of bloodlust that dalinar had towards gavilar and that type of rage and the thrill that gets into the way that it controls him i think that that functions as like a method for letting us know how much of an outlier Dalinar is even in a war-torn society like Dalinar seems to be which is kind of what Odium's point is by the end of this book as well and we'll talk about that in part five yeah I don't want to get too much into part five but I was gonna say the then development of Dalinar's story into the aspect of responsibility mm -hmm. and like because he doesn't get through the storyline and say, well, you know, it wasn't really me. It was just the thrill. So it's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm a good person. I just got possessed for a while. Of course not. But his choice to take responsibility for it when he had every reason and every excuse not to is, you know, just takes that one more step. So we're big fans of this middle part of Oathbringer. Let's go into our five favorite moments or characters, scenes, quotes, anything that we want to talk about. Brooke, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'll start. I tried very hard for this episode to pick out 
things that I know we didn't address in our previous Oathbringer podcast. So even though there are a ton of, you know, really big moments, I know that we already discussed them at length. So I tried to pick, you know, some quieter moments this time or, you know, a little bit more of a deep dive, deep dig into the text. That's great because I just gravitate to the same All wonderful the moments. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, remember this. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to not. There are so many big moments. But I'll start with one of my favorite characters. I have said it before and I'll say this again, but she is the unsung hero and the real MVP of Oathbringer. And she needs a better press person because she does not get enough love, in my opinion. Navani. My note here is Navani is holding it down, being a straight G while Dalinar loses it. This is such a thing that, you know, you've like heard in quotes before, like behind every great man is a great woman. Yeah. Or like the man is the head, but the woman is the neck that turns where he looks or whatever. And I don't like the inherent misogyny and uh, sexism that exists in those quotes for like both the obvious reason and the reverse like (laughs) a man could be the neck as well like don't be sexist like people have different (laughs) relationships let them have the relationship they're having navani is epitomizing that type of mentality and that philosophy of just like yeah the the face of the operation, Dalinar Colin. Yeah, but like he's barely who's holding fucking it together. At these meetings, figuring out how to feed people, what to do with the sewage, like everything important, managing all of the people. Yeah, it's freaking Navani. Oh, and by the way, she also designed a clock that takes your pain away. No big deal. Don't worry. J.K. It's a huge deal. In fact, <laughs> it gives her a superpower, and I think this is just one Navani thing that will become more apparent and a bigger deal later as the technology the fabrial technology grows but uh she's able to use that pain reel yes as a weapon to basically turn up the pain and then when she touches someone she can transfer a bunch of pain into them and like leave them um incapable or incapacitated so she's just inventing things that are again going to have huge repercussions down the road and we're just barely scratching the surface of how cool Navani Colin is. And when you think about how much she's already been through losing her husband to an assassin, thinking that her daughter was dead and then discovering she's alive and then now potentially losing her son. They don't know that it's for sure. But it's but like multiple weeks go by. Yeah, it's really like it's pretty obvious that most likely he's dead. And I love this quote because it just it epitomizes their relationship and the strength of their relationship and also the the strength of Navani herself and like her resilience. Quote, she just had to give Dalinar time, even if deep down a part of her was angry, angry that his pain so overshadowed her growing fear for Elokar and Adolin, angry that he got to drink himself to oblivion, leaving her to pick up the pieces but she had learned that nobody was strong all the time, not even Dalinar Colin. Love wasn't about being right or wrong, but about standing up and helping when your partner's back was bowed. He would likely do the same for her someday. End quote. Like I said, straight G. She is the best. I mean, she's the partner that everyone wishes 
that they had. Also, just a legit snack as well. Like, I've seen the artwork. <laughs> it's nice. I love Navani, and I think that this strength that she has when Dalinar kind of goes down, she steps up and takes more responsibility. It is maybe hinting at something along the lines of her possible uh, Night Radiant path. There's some speculation out there that she will become a Night Radiant. We've talked about it after the uh, quiz of the Night Radiants, but I really love this idea that Navani is just... She's like always working. She's always operating. She's always doing her thing. And then also she can be the perfect complement to her partner, Dalinar. It's just, you know, hats off. Yeah, nothing else to be said. Navani rules. Hmm. All right. Hit me with one of yours. Let's talk about another lady of the Cosmere who doesn't get enough love. And one that I think will prove to be an incredibly important night radiant and aspect of books four and five. And that's Malata. Malata is the radiant that comes with Teravangian, found in Carbaranth. Uh, she is of the Dustbringer order. She has very little screen time. I don't want to you know, focus too much or dive too much in depth because it's really not a bunch of screen time and it's more theories. I gotta say, though... After reading the Night's Radiant quiz and descriptions, the Dustbringers had some great PR for that quiz because I was like, wow, you know, they really don't sound that bad, actually. Like, they have they have plenty of good qualities. They get a bad rap being called Dustbringers. Everyone thinks they're the bad Night's Radiant, but they sound pretty cool. I get it. But Malata makes me think that they're not that cool. She scares me. Uh, for a lot of reasons. She scares me for the fact that she is a Night Radiant of the Third Order because she's able to summon her Spren as a sword um, and operates the Oath Gate. That's kind of her main job, and she just kind of blends into the background for most of her time on screen. But she has one scene with Teravangian that is really important, and it's easy to overlook, but she gives a little bit of history and kind of, as you said, very clearly makes it apparent that uh, there's a big risk around Malata and the I mean, Dustbringers slash Releasers. I just want to say the name that they prefer, Releasers. I've got to say, though, I will give the rest of the Dustbringers the benefit of the doubt. If Maybe if they're not aligned with the diagram and Teravangian, maybe they're not as bad as Malata is, but like... Malata is already the kind of person who would align herself with Teravangian. So, you know, that already, like, tells us something about her personality. So let's bring out the quote. And this is between Teravangian and Malata, but Malata is the only one speaking. So here we go. Quote, they assume all the Spren are going to be on their side. Never mind what the Radiance did to Sparks' friends. Never mind that organized devotion to honor is what killed hundreds of Ashbrin in the first place. Spark is game for whatever it takes to get vengeance. And what lets her break stuff. <laughs> End quote. Okay, breaking things doesn't sound too great. 
And get vengeance. vengeance too. Yeah. Bad. Like vengeance yeah. pact. We've already done this. Not good. We don't need to get stuck in vengeance cycles. I think that the big takeaway though that I'm scared of is her first line, the assumption that all the Spren are going to be on the side of the Knights Radiant. Yeah, I think we get a little taste of this in some of the epigraphs from previous Knights Radiant that are talking mm-hmm. about uh, divisions and clashes within the ranks of Knights Radiant. And we're kind of starting to see that already happen where the uh, Skybreakers have taken the side of the Singers. The Dustbringers may not be on the same side as some of the other knights radiant like we're already could be like mercenaries who like goes to the highest bidder yeah like who knows but it certainly makes you think again about all the knights radiants are gonna you know reemerge and then fight odium and it's gonna be like the avengers you know just this group of strong heroes working together that's a great point and like that's i guess the big kind of uh comparison that we have the fellowship of the ring and the avengers these we're getting the team together and yeah. our team is gonna fight the bad guy and maybe the guy that you thought was the bad guy isn't the bad guy there's actually a bigger bad guy but our team's still gonna but come team, together yeah, yeah like the core of the team and so you just have this type of fellowship or fast and the furious family <laughs> it's just always together and that kind of seemed like what Dalinar was building you know the unity and the bondsmith but But now it really is like wow okay there's a lot of complicated history here Mm -hmm. with the spren and the knights radiant and even if there wasn't division previously there probably would be now but it sounds like there was still division back in the day so we're all set up for complicated things and i think what's really interesting with the spren is their unnaturally long lives compared to humans where many of them unlike sill have memories of the tragedies that happened previously and so like oh gosh now you're dealing with problems from hundreds or thousands of years ago and it's just like that's a lot of weight to be carrying around <laughs> and a lot of stuff. I we've mentioned this previously, but just do, does that matter to like a normal 25-year-old hanging out in Rashar who's like a Thalen City merchant or something like yeah. that? And it's just it's so much weight, it's so much history. It's one of the things we talk a lot about with Brandon and the way that he is kind of a student of history, but then also knows that history is wrong in that way that you learn as a student of history. And I think Malata is just a great example of we don't know what the future holds and it's what drives me with interest into Rhythm of War because like I want to know what's going on with the Dustbringers slash releasers slash all the other orders. Please join our team. Like I want an Avengers, yeah. but it doesn't seem like that's what's going to happen. Tell me about another one of your favorite things from Oathbringer. Okay, I want to talk about Kolinar's Windblades. This is the first time that we've been to Kolinar. We have heard tell of it in previous books. And, yeah, heard tell of the Windblades, too. Yes, exactly. Basically, every time that Kolinar is mentioned, they mention its beautiful Windblades, these, like, rock outcroppings that define the city, right? It's like... Uh, like an iconic uh, cityscape, you know, the way we would describe that. 
uh, a famous building in a city or whatever. Oh, you can see it for miles. That's the defining feature. Kolinar has the wind blades. When our beloved team of heroes comes to Kolinar, there are many mentions of the wind blades in very specific ways. Quote, the wind blades, curious rock formations that rose from the stone like the fins of some giant creature mostly hidden beneath the surface. End quote. Quote, the large curves of stone glittered with red, white, and orange strata, their hues deepened by the rain. He hadn't realized that the city walls were partially constructed on tops of the outer wind blades. There, the lower sections of the walls literally sprouted from the ground. End quote. My note in my Kindle says, no, city is built on a thunderclast. And it would be like a very large thunderclast. But like, but tell me that's not what it is. You can't. That is what it is. And I just have this horrific vision. I mean, Kolinar's lost by the time we get it to is, the end. But I, there's definitely going to be a scene where like this huge thunderclast just pulls itself out of the ground and destroys Kolinar. I am terrified of that possibility, but I do think that there's a return to Kolinar scene somewhere. Yeah, at some point they're going to have to, like, get it back. I would think so, but it could also be just, like, the base of Odium. Because Odium's that type of dude who would, like, be a real dick about it. He'd be like, I'm going to set up my new (laughs) throne in Kolinar, and I'm going to rule from... uh, Dalinar, I have your homeland. Basically, and just, like, challenge him in a very, just, like, upfront way. I think that these repeating quotes and just the repeating kind of like a magician like trying to bring your eye towards the wind blades it's like a gigantic arrow look at the wind blades this is a thunderclast and we see in part five the power and potential of thunderclass we'll talk more about what they are and like what they can do but i do have a fear that the all-powerful, like the the thunder class. What was it in Greek mythology? I don't know. It's like one of the titans. The Hydra. No, well, no, even bigger. Like oh. one of the titans. You know, was like made out of stone. Oh, and yeah, rock, yeah. But yeah. basically, he was like a mountain that could move. And that's what I feel is going on with the uh, the wind blades of Kolinar. It's just going to be this thing that's like a mountain that stands up, and then you're just like, oh, great. Well, that's seven hundred feet tall yeah. and made out of all stone. <laughs> so. It's a good call out. Thank you. Uh, I also just want to throw in a, another little tidbit that is mentioned here. There are so many references to strata, both mm. in Urithiru and then when they're in Kolinar as well. And I just wonder what is going to happen with that. It's clear that it's very significant and there's some kind of meaning to it. And so that's certainly something that I'm hoping to get more of in Rhythm of War I can't wait to see what it is. Well, that's cymatics, right? That's the current theory that if we had Brother Capsule talking uh about cymatics in the first book, and he said that the cities themselves were created in the image that like could be replicated by playing notes of sound. And if you imagine that the notes of that sound, let's call it the the Rasharian sound or or just like the sound of the shards. Uh, I think I've mentioned before, I think that 
honor and cultivation and maybe odium but honor and cultivation like made rashar or changed rashar by singing and by like creating music and that this strata would represent the sound waves yeah i think that's right but when shalana's in Urithiru, yeah, she mentions, she's like, I don't understand why people keep getting turned around on the tower. It's very obvious. You just look at the strata and that like tells me where to go and where I am. And so I'm just curious to see how that aspect of it like continues to play out. Was it part of the design of Urithiru and like did all of the Knights Radiant previously know how to read the strata? Is it really just Shalon and just because she's an artist? Well, I think it's a light weaver thing specifically. I do think there's the a pr- pattern, I guess, not a to the strata. Yes, that in part. But I, she has the power as, as a light weaver to affect both sound and light. It is not a separate thing. It's That's one a good point. Thing. That's a really and good so point. I think that her innate ability is yes, because she's an artist. And yes, because she's a light weaver, but I really think that she's intuiting a lot more than other people would because she sees it and she sees it like a path or it's Mm -hmm. guiding her. Mm -hmm. Other people would see it, but they can't process the kind of sound motion in the the same same way. way. Yeah. Mm, I like that. That kind of helps me put together. I have a really difficult time like wrapping my mind around the light weavers and their spren and stuff because they do seem very different. It's not, yeah, it's not quite as cohesive, I feel, as something like the Windrunners and Honor is. You know, like Honor Spren are pretty straightforward. Like we stand for keeping your oath, and we're called Honor Spren because we're about honor. And actually, Syl and the Pattern have this conversation a little bit later. And yes. We'll talk about that. Yeah. Before I totally dive off a cliff of the Cosmere, <laughs> tell me another thing that you want to talk about. A short one. Zeth, Sunsun, Volano, Truthless, just Zeth. Oh, yeah. I love how his name changes throughout this book. At the beginning of the book, he is still being called Zeth, Sunsun, Volano, or Zeth, Sun. Naturo, and then by the end of the book, every time he's mentioned, he's called uh, Zeth of the Skybreakers mm-hmm. is his new name. And so the parallels I'll talk about between all the characters uh, in my next bit. But just with Zeth, I love this concept, and we've already mentioned it with Dalinar, about someone who was our villain, was our mm-hmm. literal antagonist to the first two books now become someone that we're like kind of rooting for and then yeah, by the end he's so sympathetic when you like hear his whole story yeah. yeah but he is obviously carrying around night blood any character that carries around night blood is set up to have a great time because <laughs> any time anytime you can get night blood to be what you get to bounce off of the abbot to your costello like that you're in for good jokes. Just I all told, around. I said this to you off, Mike, but one of my favorite moments in this book is when Nightblood asks Zeth if they're going to kill people now because Zeth talks too much, just like Vasher. Vasher just went on and on and on. <laughs> and Zeth and Vasher are both 
the most stoic, like least verbose characters we've met. Yeah, I mean, they're basically Geralt from the Witcher series. Just given a lot of... That's Vasher, or how I imagine him. Yes. And I love the pairing, obviously, between Zeth, this person who is searching for something to follow. And with the Skybreakers and also with Nightblood, Nightblood feels like he has something he loves following, which is just like a very simple command, destroy evil. And Nail, leader of the Skybreakers, is struggling with what he is following. Yeah, I I picked that out on this reread. There's a great moment between Zeth and Nightblood when he feels Nightblood's insane devotion to that one command, mm-hmm. destroy evil. But because Zeth has so much experience with blindly following something, he's able to resist that more than other people who have wielded Nightblood. And it makes me wonder if Nail specifically entrusted Zeth with Nightblood because of that, because he knew that Zeth's life experience would make him uniquely capable of being disciplined even with Nightblood. I believe this part's in part five, but at least for a brief moment, Nightblood is also in the possession of Cultivation slash the Night Watcher as well. And I'm still not exactly clear how it gets from one character to another. We'll talk about that next episode. Exactly. So Zeth, his training, has two different scenes that we see. Training exercises. Yes. And the first is the challenge to find the escaped prisoners. And the second is a kind of game where they're flying around with the dust bombs and they are like throwing them at each other. It seems like so much fun. Like I just want to hang out and be super powered and just play like tag. This is completely random and you can cut this if you want to. But did you ever watch the movie The Swan Princess? It's an animated movie that came out in like 1996. I believe so. Yes. There is a scene in that movie when the prince is practicing his hunting, but with arrows, arrows that with have the big bu- yes. yeah, the little like colored puffies. And it's very funny. And that's exactly what this scene with Zeth is. What I think was important from those two scenes and eventually kind of sets up his joining Dalinar and the Knights Radiant instead of joining Nail and the Skybreakers is that in both of those situations, Zeth purposefully, significantly, did not follow the rules. Like, he broke... Well, no, 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 no. He did follow the rules. In this case, he is a perfect Skybreaker because Skybreakers are about the letter of the law. He followed the rules. There were just loopholes in the rules. Yeah. So, okay. So I obviously have. You are a windrunner. Yes. I'm (laughs) looking at it from. This isn't right. (laughs) And it's not because (laughs) he. Okay. What I mean, because he actually does the right thing when it comes to the investigation. He doesn't blame the prisoners who have escaped. He actually blames the warden of the prison. And that's the person who the Skybreakers themselves believed was guilty. And Zeth proves it. So he was correct. He got to the solution that was best for everyone involved, uh, except for the warden. But what I think is important is his, as you said, his ability to resist the influence of Nightblood. I think it's also like his ability to resist 
a lot of different kind of social or external yeah. pressures. Well, he has a lot of experience being disciplined. Yes. Right? Like, and who knows? This might just be who he is as a person. Um, or it might be a side effect of his time with his oath stone. But when he had his oath stone, we saw that he was incredibly disciplined. He knew how to follow the rules. He just did what he was told, regardless of how he felt about it, what he thought about it. You know, so he has that practice. Again, maybe he's like that naturally as well. But that's why he comes into these situations and he is not led by his emotions or his preconceived ideas. He's not someone that is going to, you know, fly off the handle. He takes a very thoughtful approach. And I'll just say that I loved the character transformation or the way that a villain was taken in a direction where now he is a sympathetic character and a character that is part of our our core team. And I find it really, really interesting, the dance between the Skybreakers and the Windrunners. Agree. And I just think that we've gotten a little bit of hints about the division between that it like kind of eventually broke the Knights Radiant was the Skybreakers and the Windrunners fighting. Yeah. I mean, you can see immediately how they would butt heads. But I also was thinking when Kaladin is struggling with the idea of I'm supposed to do what's right, but how do I know what's right? Mm -hmm. I just thought, oh, this is why they need each other. Yes. Like the, that can balance them out. Yeah, the Windrunners need the Skybreakers because that's how they're going to get that help to determine what is right. And the Skybreakers need the Windrunners to help them see that it's not always just about the letter of the law, you know. And we can uh, we can extrapolate that out and say that all of the shards need each other. You can't just have Odium out here by himself. You got to reunite them. Or just... That's my pitch. That's a good pitch. <laughs> it's a solid one. I want more from you. Give me the nerdiness. I know it's hiding within. Tell me <laughs> all about the Stormfather, Nightwatcher, the Unmade, and the Sibling. Okay, this is... A big one. But we get a bunch of great information about these big entities. And so I wanted to put it all in one place and kind of hash it all out, talk about what we think, ideas, theories, everything. I am going to start with this word of Brandon, which is, quote, one, the Nightwatcher and Stormfather are parallel entities such that the Night Watcher is to cultivation as the Stormfather is to honor. Okay, we knew that. Yep. That's number one. Two, there's a sort of parallel for Odium, but that parallel is the various unmade instead of a single entity. This is where it starts to get interesting. Okay, so that kind of solves that question. Yeah. Three, they are parallel in that they are all splinters. And as a quick reminder, splinters are the power of investiture that has existed on this planet specifically that has started to manifest its own kind of cognitive self. Yes. It is different from a sliver, which we will talk yes. about separately in a moment. Four, the unmade are voluntary splinters. 
because odium, like almost all the other shards, voluntarily splintered part of its power. Which is interesting because even though Brandon says, like almost all the other shards, we don't necessarily see it as clearly, I think, as the unmade. Like the unmade are very clearly weird manifestations of odium and as we'll read in the mythica uh i think it's hesia's mythica they are powers that also kind of have different levels of yeah cognitive ability effect and like personality some of them are like more a real person uh yelignar and uh and then some of them are more like forces and that's the thrill um, and, and Moalak. I really think that this kind of connection to the unmade as like the parallel for Odium is important. Tell us more though. Five. The Stormfather is different from the others because it's a sliver. A sliver of infinity, which means that the Stormfather has had the power of a shard and either released it or is not the shard itself. So, yeah, from my understanding, the Stormfather was a splinter that was then also invested with the remainder of Honor's power. And either he is, well, it doesn't seem like he's completely capable of wielding that power, but now he's kind of like a conduit where he's connected to it, certainly. Um, and is able to channel it and recharge all of the spheres during the high storm and stuff. But at a certain point, he would have been, you know, a weird but similar thing to a Kelsier or a Vin, another character that we've seen hold up yeah. and become a sliver. Yeah, I mean, that basically is what he is. He's just a spren instead of a person. Yes, As a exactly. sliver. Yeah. And also a splinter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it makes sense, guys. Like this it does. is this is actually all in this line. This is basically science. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was a great breakdown of sort of how all of these things are related and where the power dynamics are. Also, side note, interesting that odium that the unmade are officially declared to be splinters because that means that odium is slightly less powerful than he would have been previously because parts of himself have been splintered off. So just, uh, you know, keep that in mind. We all know what happened to preservation when its power got splintered away. I'm actually really interested in that aspect as well, just because does cultivation do that or does she do something better, which is just like pruning parts of her surroundings or parts of herself instead of splintering it off? Well, she has the Night Watcher, so there's one splinter. But the Night Watcher and the Stormfather are natural manifestations that then connected themselves to honor and cultivation, right? We don't know that. What we do know, I mean, from this is that the unmade are voluntary splinters. But it also says almost all the other shards voluntarily splintered themselves. But the Stormfather and the Night Watcher existed on Rashar before the shards i don't think we know that oh quick research check it does seem that there is a higher likelihood that there was a storm father before honor and cultivation but he is not the storm father because he's missing um a key part that like honor is going to 
splinter yeah. off himself and bond that to the Stormfather. So, and it's very much still an unknown question with more theorizing than hard word of brain in fact. So let's not go too much into those weeds and stay in the weeds that we're already in. Exactly. In the vein of Honor's relationship with the Stormfather, we hear from the Stormfather a lot of real interesting stuff about Honor. So I pulled all of this out and I think it's going to kind of help us track the timeline of events in the history of Rashar too, because I still have a lot of questions about what exactly happened when in the past. First quote, quote, honor the almighty. Did he truly care about men's pain? He did. Then I didn't understand why, but now I do. Odium lies when he claims to have sole ownership of passion. The Stormfather paused. I remember at the end Honor was more obsessed with oaths. There were times when the oath itself was more important than the meaning behind it. End quote. And we've kind of already talked about the skybreakers and the windrunners going over that. But yeah, one, I think this is interesting that Honor is exhibiting kind of the same behavior as the heralds and like how are those two things related? And then two, this is just a great rebuttal of my uh my admiration of odium from our last episode and being like well he makes a good argument i get it you know he has some uh some empathy for us humans as we've seen in other situations if you're willing to lie you can make a good argument (laughs) i like that we get the other side here that the Stormfather's like no 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 i mean honor cared and i think this is important maybe we also don't have any this is just random theorizing now but maybe Honor did do some more splintering when it came to the heralds and he continued to split himself and like because of their torture he also was being tortured like through osmosis uh, by the transitive property Uh, there's torture going on and that's just another like theorizing and maybe an example of like honor setting himself up for weakness he splintered himself too much uh, where cultivation was like playing those cards a little closer to her chest Honor, you very keep gets I mean, bond by oaths, and then you're I like kind of stuck. I think that there is something slightly more magical going on than just like we were tortured and now we're kind of crazy, because simply because the insanity seems to be in such specific and directed paths. Nail is not just a random crazy person, right? Like he is specifically crazy in that he is insanely devoted to the letter of the law and shalash again is not just randomly crazy she expresses unavoidable compulsion to scratch out her own face you know so like they're not random things so i feel like there's something a little bit deeper there that may also be happening to honor second quote but in the days leading to the recreants honor was dying When that generation of knights learned the truth, Honor did not support them. He raved, speaking of the Dawn Shards, ancient weapons used to destroy the Tranquiline Halls. Honor promised that Surge Binders would do the same to Rashar. End quote. So is this also what the Elias Steele speaks of with maybe the the Tranquiline Halls are ashen? Yeah, that's what I assume is that 
the quote unquote trinkling halls are the previous land that humans came from. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting about this quote is that honor is still alive after the final desolation. This is after a hariadium when the recreance happens, which I don't think I knew previously. I just assumed that honor had died like way before. I don't know why. I just assumed that. But honor is still alive at the time of the recreance. But he's a little bit crazy. And like the Dawn Shards, we don't know anything about the Dawn Shards, but apparently they can destroy an entire planet. And if we have this concept of the Heralds going to be a block or like holding back the Voidbringers and Odium from Rashar, if there is a connection between Honor and the Heralds, by the time that we get to the recreants, Talm has been like, it's been like 2,000 years or something of his individual torture and 2,000 years for the heralds who are on Rashar to go mad. I think that there is the potential of basically honor spread himself too thin, didn't realize what some of these herald promises and the ways that the heralds break their promises would then affect him. And like there was a, a, a similar effect to like how the, a spren with a radiant, that bond can be broken and it's very devastating for the spren and could kill them. What if honor basically did the same thing in a fashion, weakened himself by promising all of this power to the heralds who then betrayed that confidence and that trust? Maybe. Just a theory. And then from the epigraphs in chapter 67, in part three, quote, this generation has had only one bondsmith, and some blame the divisions among us for that fact. The true problem is far deeper. I believe that honor himself is changing, end quote. And then Captain Eco, who ferries our merry band of wanderers in Shadesmar, says of the Nahel bond, quote, your bond is dangerous without honor. There will not be enough checks on your power. You risk disaster, end quote. So that makes me wonder if the Knights Radiant that we are seeing now are going to manifest powers in a different way or like have slightly different abilities or options now that honor is dead versus before. It seems like honor had been you know, having some sort of bearing upon those bonds in the past. I also wonder, and I'm kind of pulling this from another source, um, but and just applying it to Rashar, but I'm also wondering if there's kind of, you know, like a hidden cost to the power that maybe the shards understood or oh. maybe the heralds understood. You think it's not end positive? It's so hard when... No, because it seems in positive or at least in neutral, um, not like hemallergy. And we've talked about those differences before. But yeah, if we want to talk about it that way, sure. It seems very in positive or in neutral, but what if in reality it's actually in negative? It's it's taking something. I'll just like briefly kind of explain like um, in The Dragon Prince, a Netflix animated show, in order for the humans to do magic, they normally have to kill some life form or like some type of sacrifice 
um, from the natural world around them, which is filled with magic, and it like sacrifices itself so they can perform a spell. I just wonder if maybe there's something like that going on where like honor used to be a check or a limit on this power because it has some destructive capabilities and then without the check on that power you risk annihilating yourself in the same way that you can create an atom bomb and you risk blowing up the entire world uh in a never-ending chain reaction that like sir this is what a real fear that people working on the manhattan project had with their first test they were like one of the things that can go wrong is the chain reaction we are starting in the bomb which will be very big we don't know how big and they like misguessed by many many orders of magnitude but they were like one of the possibilities is that the chain reaction doesn't stop that it just keeps chain reacting every single atom of air and oxygen nitrogen all just stuff and that just like keeps the chain reaction going all the way around the atmosphere kills everyone on earth and basically everything on earth that didn't happen however what if that is the destructive capability of some of these knights radiances they can just wildly spin out of control with like a fourth heightening or a fifth heightening something like that that's the question on to the most mysterious of these large powers the sibling we really hear about the sibling for the first time in oathbringer yeah and there are some very interesting things said about the sibling so i will just quickly sort of run through these and then we can speculate. Try to keep it tight here. One, the sibling seems to have some kind of connection to the Knight's Radiant or like a bearing on the Nahel Bond. There is a quote in one of the epigraphs, I believe it is chapter 68, quote, my research into the cognitive reflections of the spren at the tower has been deeply illustrative. Some thought that the sibling had withdrawn from men by intent, but I find counter to that theory. And then again, chapter 70, quote, something is happening to the sibling. I agree this is true, but the division among the knights radiant is not to blame. Our perceived worthiness is a separate issue, hmm. end quote. So it seems like, yeah, there's some sort of concept of the worthiness of the right knights radiant being responsible for the presence of the sibling or something. I don't know. Super interesting. And then the storm father basically says that the sibling isn't around anymore because humans have hurt them enough and like leave them alone. Don't bother the sibling. You already did enough damage. And then quote on the, uh, Gender pronouns there that are used to refer to the sibling. They are always referred to as they, them. Word of Brandon on this is that the sibling did not view themselves as male or female and thought that it was weird that so many spren would adopt human genders, which relates to another. Uh, quote. Yeah, word of Brandon and and cell quote that we have on uh, spren genders mm -hmm. and that there are four spren genders because humans did not imagine those other genders. Yeah. And Kaladin's like, wait, what? Yeah. And she's like, well, you didn't imagine those ones. Like, does that, I'm interested, does that mean that 
something else on Rashard did imagine them? Yeah, or I think... did the Spren imagine them for themselves? No, I think it has to do with the Parshendi. I agree. And Either the, the Parshendi or it's possible that Adonalsium created some of the Spren on Rashar with mm-hmm. its power before the Shattering. All of these things about the sibling bring up endless questions. So many questions. About just like what is going on here but i just want to really like lay out we have the storm father night watcher and the sibling the sibling has some type of important aspect of the hellbon or an important aspect of the knights radiant and their ties to power and i wonder if the sibling came with them from ashen like it's all speculation yeah it's just it's weird it throws me off because we have three shards so we would assume that like brandon said in that first quote you know you have cultivation is to night watcher as honor is to Stormfather, as odium is to the unmade and then you have the The sibling. sibling But the sibling is a bondsmith spren, we assume. So... I'm flabbergasted. (laughs) I have no answers, and it is just all deep speculation. Yeah, I'm sorry if you started this section of the podcast thinking I was going to give you answers. I did not. (laughs) All right, let's throw it over to you for maybe some less ambiguous uh, notes here. Let's bring it back to our characters. Uh, because as you just pointed out a bunch of parallels between the different major spren, I want to point out some of the parallels between our main characters of Dalinar, Shallan, and Kaladin, but as previously mentioned, also bringing in Zeth, Navani, like yeah. everyone is dealing with these types of experiences. But for some quotes, Shallan, during her traumatic experience in Kolinar when she fails and um, yeah it's that storyline is rough but afterwards uh she is hiding and says this quote for a while she'd been everyone a hundred faces one after another she searched them for comfort surely she could find someone who didn't hurt end quote all I could think when I read that quote was, of course, you can't find someone who doesn't hurt. We all hurt. Like, that is what it is to be human. And as you're saying, the parallels here between Shalon and I'm reminded of Kaladin from mm. past books of this idea of, like, why me? You know, why me? Why me, Kaladin? Why do I have to go through so much pain when Shalon the Light Eyes is just skipping through life happy as can be? This idea we have of other people hurting less or in some cases not hurting at all than we do. And um, I'm looking forward to the moment when Shalon kind of makes peace with that and realizes that she is not alone. She is not separate because of her pain. You know, it's not it's not a punishment that she is suffering or she can't find someone who doesn't hurt. It's because she's a part of the group that we all hurt. And she is looking, searching these faces and these personalities for someone who 
doesn't hurt some way to take away her pain and that's exactly what dalinar uses alcohol for yeah. to try alcohol to and the thrill yes to try to remove his pain remove the memories it's another thing that is very clear dalinar goes to the night watcher to have his memories yeah. removed so that he can stop being in pain and then when adolin ashalon if she's okay she says this quote all memories are bad Shalon will be fine. I'll bring her back in a moment. I just have to recover her. End quote. So our girl's dealing with some deep, dark problems. Yeah, and that's same, such a yeah, I mean, that's, hard moment. All memories are bad. And that is Ugh. the way that also Dalinar would experience things because he can't separate the the warlord from who he's trying to be and who he wants to be and the father and like... All of it is connected, so all memories are bad. So you just have to, like, cut it off. You just drink yourself, you know, or you get in fights, or you find the thrill, and you just, like, you turn off everything else so you can just focus on the one thing. In that same conversation, there's an observation that Adolin makes that I think at first I didn't really understand, but in this read-through, it actually struck me as really wise. He says, I prefer the real you. Which one is that, though? She's the one I'm talking to right now. You don't have to hide, Shalon. You don't have to push it down. Maybe the vase is cracked, but that only means it can show what's inside. And I like what's inside. End quote. And this concept of, like, there is a Shalon that is not the quote-unquote Shalon that she has put on for most of her life. Like, who is who is the witnesser? Right. Who is this person who is witnessing the fact that Shalon is not present? This sort of like yogic or Eastern philosophy of the witnesser, the observer, the you that is not the you that you have grown used to thinking of yourself as. There's one final quote, this one from Dalinar, where he goes through a process or realization that Kaladin and Shalon has have also gone through in other books. Uh, and it said, quote, it seemed Dalinar had been four people in his life, end quote. And then he goes over all of the different four people. Importantly, though, Kaladin says basically this exact same thing yeah. at the beginning of the book. I think that's such a great call out. And he, he adds one more than Dalinar does. And I think one more than Shalon would if she did this same thing. And that is just kind of it's also very clear because they're at different stages and they're nice yeah, radiant uh -huh. so um it makes sense that kaladin would be one step ahead of them but when kaladin says i've been i think he says three people in my life the child the soldier the slave the bridgeman um but then he adds, now I'm going to be this new person, this night radiant. radiant. And Dalinar doesn't, he's not at that point. I think yeah. by the end of Oathbringer, Dalinar would. Yeah. And that's his power up moment. Um, Shalon definitely has Shallan's a power up moment. Shalon's not there yet. But I don't think, yeah, I don't think yeah, she's quite there she yet. She hasn't really gotten on this train of Adolin's of like, who is your witnesser, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what she's looking for. And in this book, as you said all, with all of the parallels, I'm really excited to see where Shalon goes in book four, seeing Kaladin's growth in Oathbringer. It's so satisfying. I'm looking forward to getting those moments with Shalon. And I really think that it would be so wonderful if the 
characters in our story could read the stories that have come before because what they all need, everyone, every single one of them from Yasna, no matter how badass she is, um, like all our Knights Radiant need the conversation that Syl and Kaladin had when he said, I'm not good enough. I'm broken. And then Syl... And she says, they all were, silly. Exactly. They all were. Every single one of the Knights Radiant are broken because all of you are broken. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily click for Kaladin in that exact moment. But if Dalinar could realize that, if Shallan could realize that, if Renarin could realize that, if Malata and Venli and Rock, if they could yeah. all realize these things that we've read as readers and have like internalized, um, but our characters are still figuring that out. And it's so wonderful to take this big picture. That's something that Kaladin heard, I think, in book one. I think it's book one. Yeah. yeah. And so that to be carried over and experienced differently. Obviously, we haven't even talked about Teft, who is oh, God. just, and we don't need to talk about Teft, um, because I've done it in the other episodes we talked a lot, a about, lot Teft. about Teft and just how I love his story it's like a simplified version and it's very clear and to the point but that's what he is literally screaming at his spren to be it is yeah, it's like, like I'm you've broken. got the wrong man yeah. go well, find someone Benley else too in this book yes. she literally tells her spren you have the wrong sister you don't want me you have the wrong sister that's so heartbreaking because for so long like both Venli and Eshenai didn't want the role that they had like they were just having this weird parallel story of each wanting to be somewhere other than where they were being in this role that they didn't plan on being in yes and it is something that i think is fundamental to the entire cosmere this idea of being okay with your brokenness being okay with the mistakes that you've made not because they're forgiven or like forgotten but because you can make a new decision with your next step yeah i pulled out a quote from our man hoyd that i thought just sort of encapsulated that Mm -hmm. idea this theme that we've been talking about for this whole episode which is quote you mostly failed this is life the longer you live the more you fail failure is the mark of a life well lived in turn, the only way to live without failure is to be of no use to anyone, end quote. And that reminded me of a great quote by, shoot, I believe it's Beckett, but I could be wrong. So I apologize if anyone is uh, quote checking me here. But it is, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. And that is just like the only way we can live our lives is just to try again and fail better next time. I'm going to lighten it up a little bit. (laughs) Hit me with it. Hit me with the lightness. This was just an amazing moment that made me laugh in the middle of parts three and four, which are very sad. We get an incredibly entertaining conversation between Syl and Pattern. And the first part that's great is, quote, so. Syl said, sitting on a rock nearby and swinging her legs. I've always wondered, does the world look weird to you or normal? Mm, Weird, Pattern said. Mm, Same as for everyone. (laughs) 
Perfect. And to continue the weird stuff. Quote, we honor Spren, mimic honor himself. You cryptics mimic weird stuff? The fundamental underlying mathematics by which natural phenomena occur. Hmm, truths that explain the fabric of existence. Yeah, weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I both love this for, as you said, it's a bright light in the middle of some dark events that our characters are dealing with. But I also think that this is important. As you said, it's really hard to understand the light weavers, their connection to lies, and the cryptics who are like truths. But he says very clearly, the fundamental underlying mathematics by which natural phenomena occur. Truths that explain the fabric of existence. So cryptics are mathematicians. But also creators. They have to be creators because natural phenomenon is what creates everything. Right. And like, I find this so difficult to wrap my brain around as like more of a creative person and like not really a science math person. I understand and I have such appreciation for the fact that those two things are like intimately connected but it's hard but to see. But I don't really understand it. Yeah, of course. Um, Most people don't. So, yeah, but that's why, like, I really appreciate that Brandon has taken such a complex take on this particular thing. And it's a little bit frustrating to me because I would like everything to fit in its neat little cohesive box that is, you know, color coded and organized like the Care Bears or something. <laughs> and... The light weavers don't fit in that for me. I'm always like, like you said, I don't really understand their spren. They're cryptics, but they're lie spren. But they like truths, but they're patterns, but they're also art and numbers. And I don't know how to reconcile those things in my brain. I think that it comes down to if we're just trying to take what pattern says as completely correct, and it might not be. But because what a light weaver specializes in are manipulating physical properties, light and sound, light waves and sound waves. And those are also the same physical properties that create everything in the universe. I think what it comes down to is a very beautiful expression because there's also a word of Brandon, and I think this is important, the sounds the rhythms of rashar are not limited to rashar yes we said that a couple episodes ago i was so happy to find that word of brandon that it's actually a cosmere wide phenomenon and so that is what i think the cryptics are getting at is that there is a fundamental underlying reality that is based or the foundation of that is mathematical properties things that can be broken down yeah. in a very like e equals mc squared fashion right but then they create the kinds of uh geometry and like shapes and things that make up all of nature mm-hmm. and like the best way that i can think of to sort of sort of make it make sense in my brain is gaudi's architecture yes and the fibonacci sequence yeah stuff like that yes 100 percent um, and 
if those references did not make sense, I don't think we're going to explain them right now. Go no. research those on your own. Uh, <laughs> put some links in the show notes or something. Yeah, if you two, like me, are confused by the Lightweavers and their spren, there's a stepping stone for you. And yeah. tell me if you figure it out. Fibonacci to Gaudi. Yeah. You got it. All right, rock it. All right, over to you. This is going to be my final one of the episode, and it ends part four. Oh, God. Just like part three ends with the death of Elicar and this like huge emotional moment, part four ends with a huge political failing where the alliance that had been built up over this entire book. A huge political backstab by Taravangian, I think you mean. I do mean. This alliance system comes crumbling down as three lies that are, well, they're playing with truth, which is the best kind of a lie, uh, but three lies are dropped on the world all at once. And I think that all of these are still important going into Rhythm of War. Um, and obviously Taravangian and like how he is pulling all the strings, that's important. I know. I have so many other things to say about Taravangian, but we've done maybe two podcasts completely yeah. about him. They're good. I like the Taravangian episodes as well. Um, but these are the three lies. So Dalinar plans and planned to become the high king. Okay, not really a lie of commission, just lie of omission. He didn't tell he just any didn't of the other people. monarchs. And it very much plays into the fear that everyone has that he is the conqueror. Yeah. Because he's just conquered Alethkar by like surpassing Elikar is what he fundamentally did or that's what they are afraid of. Then you have the translation of the Dawn chant, which allows them oh, to uncover the message of the Elias Steel, the oldest written uh, document i think it's on stone but oldest written document in existence that anybody knows about is the elias steel and it isla isla steel isla steel yeah okay it's e-i-l-a sorry and that's going to of course reveal that humans are the invaders and that the parshendi slash listeners are the native inhabitants of rishar and that Dalinar has met with Odium and fears his corruption. This is important, too, because it's Malata who steals that information and gives it to Taravangian, which then he plays off as if it came from someone else. But those three lies, the High King issue, the true nature of humans on Rashar, and the fact that Odium is able to corrupt individuals and like has met with dalinar all very important still even though the battle of thalen city has already taken place and we're going into rhythm of war but i think the most important thing is what we mentioned at the top of this episode briefly briefly is what fen says about a religious collapse and like dalinar are you sure that you want to be playing with this you know, hot potato of religion in the middle of this dangerous circumstance because, like, you need to get your own Vorin house in order. And this is what their back and forth entails. Fen and Dalinar. Will you play uh, Dalinar in this instance? 
Of course. Quote, Many of my soldiers follow the passions. They talk of, at long last, breaking away from the Vorn church. I won't recant. Even if it causes a wholesale religious collapse in the middle of a war? End quote. Yeah, I think that's a great point and a great call out. I could certainly see there being a big religious battle on top of the battles that they're already fighting, potentially another instance of the hierarchy or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, I also love that you picked this quote because it talks about this side religion of the, the passions, passions yeah. which is really highlighted in this book a lot, which just brings up so many questions about, like, was this the original religion of the humans? Does that mean that their original god was Odium, which is kind of alluded to in the Isla Steel? And just, I have so many questions about all of that. Tell me about your last favorite moment. Okay, last one, quick one, just a short note here. Something I thought was very interesting happens in Shadesmar, quote, The corrupted glory spren landed on Shallan's arm. Odium suspect that you survived, a voice said in her mind, that that was the voice of the unmade from the mirror, Ja'anat. He thinks something strange happened to the Oathgate because of our influence. We've never managed to enlighten such powerful spren before, end quote. So the unmade refers to what we would call corrupting a spren, as enlightening a spren, which I just found to be fascinating. And it made me think of like the uh, the Adam and Eve story of the Bible and how you can sort of read it as the evil servant tempted Eve with, you know, this bad apple that took away her innocence or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, made her not pure anymore. Or, or Gnostic Christians. Or you could read it as the serpent is offering knowledge that she then takes. And so she is enlightened by the intake of knowledge. Yeah, I think that's the, the Gnostic Christians, an ancient sect, not really like popular or anything today. Uh, but they believe that Eve was making a choice not that she was like suckered mm. into anything and that the choice was beneficial for human beings, that knowledge was the thing we needed, that we were kind of like, right, the one, that it was like, like we could be little babies forever, just exactly. like living in our warm, safe jungle and like nothing bad ever happens to us. But we need to the knowledge to progress and kind yeah. of have the full experiences. I think that's a super interesting. Anyway, yeah, genre. so interesting. Also helping like she's an unmade of odium but is helping our heroes she yeah she is the one that seems the most human and Mm -hmm. she also behaves and speaks as though she is a prisoner like she has been in control yeah she says that she was compelled to affect these spren of the oath gate like she didn't do it of her own accord they kind of like put a gun to her head and were like do it bitch um (laughs) exactly like that and there's another quote that's come uh, previously. We've talked about the we were made and then unmade. Yes. And she has a son. Go back and listen to our unmade episode. There's a bunch more there, but lots of interesting stuff in this section. Let's talk about some Cosmere connections before we sign off. 
There are a bunch, and the most obvious one is everyone's favorite wall captain, Azure. Azure! Azure is Vivenna. A.K.A. Vivenna. Yeah, and I... If you didn't catch that. Definitely remember... <laughs> All spoilers. ...on the first read, we, you know, clearly have, like, a reading competition who can read the fastest when we get a new book um and i think i was slightly ahead at this point yeah because you, you had gotten the the chapters but ahead of time yeah yeah and then you sanders avalanched your way to victory obviously but at this point i knew or i was pretty confident that azure was vivenna but you were still in the midst of it and i was just like when are you gonna figure it out when are you gonna well figure it out? i also like to hold my judgment until i have enough evidence you are a very patient reader like, yeah i'm immediately I, jumping i don't want to make yeah a judgment call unless i have enough evidence to support my opinion you've seen the number of quotes i put in my notes i need to this back up my arguments i so shall, I, shall. I did it was like an inkling in my brain i was like okay okay might be vivetta might oh okay i kind of think it's vivetta maybe here you know this is a point in favor this is a point in favor i just don't want to make up my mind i saw a weird shard blade that didn't disappear and i was like and a azure. woman with a color name yes and i was like azure azure it's vivenna got it got it called it and i was so proud of myself i was just like a little kid who's like handed their parents the first drawing they've ever done and the parents are just like yeah kid you're it's this, great. Is, this is beautiful i want to put this on the fridge Azure has many quotes that we can take out. One, she's so knowledgeable about Shadesmar, and we get her for so little time. Oh, I like, I just want more. Azure, stay around. I want her to tell, tell me everything. Yeah. She goes off to the Horn Eater Peaks and leaves our group to go to Thalen City. We know the Horn Eater Peaks are really struggling because Moalak has moved up there and is corrupting. Under the control, yeah, of the unmade and the fused. Yeah. Azure says, quote, I'm no figure from mythology, thank you very much. I'm just a woman who has been constantly out of her league since adolescent, end quote. So poignant, especially when you've just read Warbreaker and you're just like, oh, oh Vivenna, yeah. you really have had kind of a rough life. Just, yeah. And constantly the, out of your league since adolescence. We see them all, Adolin, Kaladin, and Azure do perform the same kata which is like their morning workout exercise kind of a yoga flow and they all go back and forth uh saying quote where did you learn that kata from my sword master you likewise it's a wonderful connection moment obviously simple but obvious if you know the cosmere <laughs> and then it's unveiled that the sword master is the one she is hunting like, they knew she was on Rashad oh, to hunt yeah, someone. Yeah. And then it's unveiled. Like, if you see that Swordmaster, let him know Tell I'm him coming. Tell him I'm looking for yeah, him. Yeah, it's like, I'm coming. Yeah. And we don't, we've all talked a lot about Azure as well. We don't know exactly what her motivation is. We want that Warbreaker too. Uh, but I don't know if we will get any more Azure. She might be gone for the yeah. foreseeable future. At least one book. I could see no Azure in book four, maybe returning for something in book five. But like... I think this little clip is also the most we're going to get for now. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. In Shadesmar, we also get the Lighthouse Keeper, also known as the Re-Oracle, who definitely seems to be a Elantrian. But incredibly aware of investiture across the Cosmere. He asked what 
Kalanin's heightening is. He swears by merciful Domi. And then he knows the history of the Knights Radiant and that they like were on the edge of re- returning and had returned in the past. It's just like... He knows he's a very knowledgeable little lighthouse keeper. And then he has some interesting decorations inside of the lighthouse as well. Quote, one wall contained a picture of people kneeling before a bright white mirror. Another was of a cityscape at dusk with a group of low houses clustered before an enormous wall that had light glowing behind it. End quote. So certainly sounds like Elantris. What I also thought, at least a little bit, is that what if no i i don't think this is actually going to work out but like that story of the girl who looked up who was living in a village that was in darkness and there was a wall and beyond the wall was light and she went there and got the light and returned it back that also kind of sounds like this picture Um, that's funny that's interesting where the cityscape is at dusk there's the low houses kind of in darkness big old wall that would be the wall to an mattress uh and inside and so i'm like did the story come from the picture like did someone bring that picture to rashar and then the story started like they told that story what is that oh and let me tell you this story about the girl who stood up and they tell this story about a girl who could be is elantris that picture which then becomes the story that is told to shalon i have no idea but that's the type of stuff that because of the time gaps in between all of these different events could at least be conceivably possible for sure On a more ambiguous front, there is a Kaladin flashback that mentions a previous commanding officer of his named Sergeant Tux? 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 Nice. I like the double K. (laughs) And this sergeant is described as having features that were off somehow. And that is normally a key that the person is from off-world. Yeah. So interested if anything comes of that or if it is literally just a random breadcrumb that Brandon has thrown in. There is a Cosmere Connection character that I am extremely excited to talk about in our next episode because he's in part five. Ooh, another great. This is a true just tidbit to throw in here. While I was researching, I found a word of Brandon that the pole stones or gemstones on Rashar that are associated with the different Knights Radiant and are also used in their fabrials, etc., are significant only because of color, the color of the gem, which ties it into the Nalthian magic system of awakening. So there's a fun fact for y'all. Hoid sightings. We had a bunch of Hoid in part three. Bunch of Hoid. We also have a bunch of Hoid episodes from our last Oathbringer run. And those are where, if you want the details of all the different Hoid, you should definitely uh, dive into those episodes. However, clearly his most important moment is being there for Shalon, telling her the story of the girl who stood up in his new way. Their combination magic power, where they're like kind of supporting one another, he makes her magic better and like more realistic. Maybe the same thing is happening vice versa as well. Um, importantly, Hoyd arrived at the end of Words of Radiance in Kolinar with a shipment of aluminum. And that aluminum is what allows 
the wall guard to um, both soul cast safely and a span read i believe they have no they, they said still that the span read, read won't work but they are able to produce food yeah and so he's key to keeping people alive in colonar just long enough for our radiance to show up and have a bunch of terrible events so <laughs> an interesting note on aluminum on rashar is that at another point in this book teravangian mentions that there are rumors of a metal that can stop shard blades and it falls from, from the sky. sky. Yes. Which makes me think, like, did it get here by meteor? Or, like, what does that mean? It certainly would be, just to bring it back into our world, it's totally possible for meteors to bring elements that yeah. don't exist in large amounts on your home planet. So, like, maybe the only naturally occurring aluminum on Rashar is from meteors, but we know that aluminum exists elsewhere in the Cosmere in bigger numbers or in bigger amounts. And so I wonder, did Hoyd get his from a space rock or did he bring it from off world? Is like there's some shit. Well, I would assume that Hoyd would have gotten it. He probably would have brought it through Shadesmar or something. But I, I think Teravangian cool. is referencing something else. Yes, yeah. I agree. But uh, that's what I kind of think is that like maybe Hoyd was acting as like a Shadesmar merchant. Uh, yeah, and bringing he's stuff. a pack mule. He's basically a drug mule. The drug mule of the Cosmere equals Hoyd. And the drug he is bringing <laughs> is aluminum. But remember, aluminum can hold nightblood, it stop shard blades. investiture inert. Yes, and can block the sensing ability of any of our either heroes or villains. That was a nice long episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening on this long reread journey. We've almost made it out of the drought. We are coming to the end of summer, but we will still give our summer plea for ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice or social media platform. If you want to rate us on Facebook, you can do that also. Those are super helpful for getting new fans to find us. And we will see you very soon for Oathbringer Part 5. The conclusion to our reread and the final major episode, not necessarily final episode, but final major episode before the release of Rhythm of War. Thanks so much for staying with us. Brooke, can you take us away? Until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. <laughs>